Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. They were building positions in there if for a fight. happened to us, by the time anyone got to us, I think it was chaos. the weather was so bad, there would be no to run boots full of blood. And the next thing I hear was alarms screaming. Chances of survival were very, very slim. The soldiers didn't want to go into the ambushes, so they'd send the kids in first. So he was sent in first into an ambush and he got shot in the stomach. It was very hard for me, very hard for my family. And the pain burst. Proud of the crew, proud of what I've achieved and what I'm doing. The volunteer for service was in effect to put your life on the line. Welcome to Life on the Line. I spent a few days in Melbourne interviewing some Navy veterans of World War II, Korea and Vietnam. During my visit, the Frankston Naval Memorial Club kindly invited me to their weekly Friday night event. It's a casual get-together for members of the club to reminisce with each other and their partners about their Navy days and swap worries. I took a lapel mic and spoke to a few members about their time at sea. I apologise in advance for the background noise, it gets a bit loud in places. I sadly had to cut a couple of conversations because the background noise just became too much. The first few clips featured here are brief extracts from some of my conversations, and the final interview is longer than the others with the club's president, Harry Kime. Harry had quite a few interesting stories. On a Friday night, members of the association gather in their very nice club, have a yarn, have a drink, and I'm interrupting their evening to come and chat with some of the members. What's your name? Hayden Whitfield. What year did you join the Navy? Uh, I joined in February of 1966. What was your first deployment? Um, HMS Queenborough, which was an old North Atlantic English frigate. What was your role on the ship? Uh, I was an ordinary seaman. Jack of all trades and master of none. Where did that take you from there? Um, I did about nine months on that and then I came uh, down to service and did a cookie course and finished that in about August of 67 I think it was. Spent a couple of months at service and went to uh, Lonsdale, HMS Lonsdale in Port Melbourne. And where were you next at sea? Uh, that would have been in 1968, I joined the Anzac and spent about 18 months on there. Were you escorting the Sydney round? Or? No, not at that stage. I just missed one trip that they escorted the Sydney. So what was the Anzac doing at that time? Uh, when I was on it, just doing an Australia uh, circumnavigation, ports of call, you know, showing the flag as they called it. On 25th of January, 71, I got a draft to the Sydney. Okay. That's when Sydney went downhill. <laughs> and were you on Sydney as a cook? I was on Sydney as a Calic cook then, three months in the main galley, mm-hmm. and then I got put up into uh, captain staff. Sydney would have been old hat at its um, ferry runs by then. Did you come across anything a bit uncomfortable, a bit out of the ordinary, or it was smooth sailing? Uh, a bit iffy at the start, you know, first time. And for yourself personally? Yes, for myself personally. Wasn't quite sure what to expect. It wasn't so bad. It, probably in the first week going up, once we got within um, two or three days, things starting to tighten up in the ship, and you could feel the atmosphere change, you know. And that's when I started to notice things were a little bit different. Once we came in and, and we anchored, you know, we were pretty well quick unloading and quick loading back up again and scooting out again. 
So, you know, there wasn't too much going on. Did you interact with any of the troops that were...? Yes, um, the younger ones, of course, which were probably about my age, give or take, 20, 21, 22. They were pretty vocal about things that they did. And, they had a few souvenirs which were a little bit um, questionable, questionable to say the least. Probably shouldn't say what they were, but you know, I'll tell you, one was a, a human skull that they brought back. Why, I don't know, but... <laughs> and whose and how, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so they were a bit uptight the first couple of days, but after they settled in, they were... And by then, more of them would have been national servicemen than not. I would, I would think that the majority of them were nationals. You only get a sprinkling of uh, regulars. But uh, yeah, they were very happy to be on their way. And you could see the tension and just drain out of them after a couple of days, you know. Once they were away from the land, and uh, they, knew, they actually knew we were heading home, they relaxed quite a lot. What's your name? Bernie. When did you join the Navy? I joined in October the 23rd, 1965. Just like it was yesterday? Just like yesterday. It goes that quickly. It really does. What was your uh, first operational deployment? Uh, Vietnam. On what ship? Uh, HMAS Sydney. Uh, for a year. I did two trips to Vietnam. And then um, come down and did my course. I was a cook. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I won't say takabaka. <laughs> yeah, fitter and turner, they say. Fit it in the oven and turn it, you know. But no one ever died of starvation or died of starvation. Or, or food poisoning? No, that's right. No food poisoning, no. I was surprised. You know, you have, yet in the canteen, they always had a lot of, yeah, gastro in, from the canteen. But as far as I know, they never went hungry. Put it that way. They, I had a captive audience three times a day. I enjoyed it. And I, I think every young person should do at least two years conscription. So give a bit of discipline. The young kids of today just don't, haven't got a clue. And a lot of them, you'd get a lot of them probably staying in the, in the services, you know, with the Air Force Army, and say, oh, it's a good life, good pay, and you meet new friends and, and things like that. So, yeah. So finish school and do a year or two national service, then move yeah, on whatever? Yeah, that's right. They should all do it. Everywhere, a lot of other countries overseas do it, and they'd probably give a bit of discipline to some of the young kids. Anyone sitting here? Alex. Alex, Brian, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, Brian. Brian, do you mind if I record you? Ah, go for your life. So what do you want to know? How do you look back Marines on your career in the military today? You weren't even a twinkle in your dad's eye. Bugger me, Dad. Oh, I suppose you enjoy the camaraderie. I've still got mates around the country, which I still join. I ring up and it's just like, saw them yesterday, haven't seen them for 15 years, thereabouts. I suppose when I left I was fairly bitter because of the way the promotion went. They, in my time, the Navy come a gutter. They've, they've tried, they've, in the 2000, when I went down there to teach again, they were teaching a course to make the electricians on par when they left the Navy to give them a career path in the civilian world. It worked in one way and it didn't work in another. You can't equate a naval electrician to a person outside. My son's a, he's an electrician, okay? Civil electrician. Yeah. Uh, sorry, my grandson, yeah, a civil electrician. He knows lots of things about the rules and regulations and switchboards. But I say to him, go and fix the fridge. I don't know how to do that, Pa. 
Uh, what about the washing machine? Oh, I can't do that. How do you do this? Because that's what they do. A naval electrician or a naval maintenance person, they have to learn and they have to have the basics to fix everything, from TV sets to it doesn't matter what it is. Because electrically, they, you've got power in, it does something, it works or it doesn't. So you're going to be able to sit there and work it out. Creative problem-solving skills. You're the only one on the ship. That's right. That's right. But all the people like me, and you can't be trained for everything. So what you do is you train the people in basics very thoroughly so they understand what's going on. You know, I can teach you hydraulics. I can teach you pneumatics. Pneumatics, if you don't know, is the, is the engineering of air. Okay? They call it pneumatics. Hydraulics is oil. Okay, electricity is electricity, naturally enough, and then mechanical is just mechanical things, gears, wheels, diesel engines, suck, squeeze, bang, blow, suck it in, you squeeze it, you spray it, it explodes, mechanical turning, all that sort of stuff. You have to be able to teach the person through training during his career and also a good part of his work up, the things he's going to run across and make him competent to do it. You know, I'd get these kids before they went to sea and I'd scare the shit out of them. What is your name? Richard Kime, K-I-M-E, but I am known more commonly as Harry Kime. When and where were you born? I was born in Bushy, which is um, north of London, but on, on the perimeter of London, in Hertfordshire, in 1939. Do you have much memory of World War II as a small child? I, I do, yes. Um, Although I don't remember the first house we lived in, that was bombed and destroyed, but we weren't in it at the time, so my mother and I survived, obviously, and we moved into another house in an adjacent suburb called Watford, and again that was bombed, but we weren't there when it got hit. I do remember that place because I, I remember that, you know, after it was bombed, somebody had stolen my bike, you know. Um, it, you know, there was looting, of course, in the war. I also remember a doodlebug, you know, a V1 landing on a factory to opposite where me and my mother were staying. And in fact, if she hadn't turned around to go to the toilet at the last minute, we'd have been standing at a bus stop that was flattened in the explosion. So I had a lucky escape with that. Yeah. And uh, when that bomb, that, that doodlebug landed, they, they used my grandparents' shop as a casualty clearing station and I took tea to fellas who'd been dragged out of rubble and that, you know. Did you have any family serving World War One? Yes, my grandfather served in the Navy in World War One. was at the Battle of Jutland. Second largest naval battle in history. Yeah, an ordinary seaman. <laughs> Still the Battle of Jutland? Yep, yep. On what ship? Tiger. And did you have any family in World War II? My father served in the Air Force in World War II as a ground, he was a radar bloke. He did serve in France, but as the Allies moved further eastward, he was in the mob who sort of came a hundred miles behind them, sort of thing. Just behind the lines? Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. He, di he didn't have any traumatic experiences that I'm aware of. Him and my mother divorced shortly after the war, and I've had no contact with him ever since. 
and you never got really much of an inkling why? He took off with a French barmaid. So that was war-related? It was war-related, yeah. I see. When you were growing up, did you have any inclination to joining the military yourself, do you remember? Not initially, but I, like all kids in, in, in uh, post-war years, I used to read Boys' Own magazine and things like that. And, of course, you know, there was always heroic deeds being done by somebody or other in the book or the comic. By the time I was in my early teens, I decided I want to join the Navy, and I actually joined the Royal Navy at 15. It was HMS Ganges, which was a boys' training establishment, which was fairly authoritarian, but I had been at boarding school for about five years before that, and the discipline in the Navy wasn't too different from the boarding school anyway. I didn't have a problem, you know. What was your first um, at-sea deployment? I went to a submarine depot ship in Scotland. I was sent to it because I was in the upper academic level of the boys and the ship had a schoolmaster and me and two others were sent to it to do the high, you know, the training or the lessons for the higher educational test, which in due course we passed. It wasn't a very exciting ship. It spent most of the time swinging round a boy, you know, with submarines coming alongside, but the ship itself didn't really go anywhere much. In the 18 months I was on there, we went to Bermuda and we went to Saint-Nazaire in the north of France and we went to Belfast in Ireland and that was about it. The rest of the time we were stuck on this buoy in Rossi Bay in Scotland. I joined in 54, so this would have been 55, sort of 56, yeah. Uh, I got sent to, the, to them what they called the Far East, of course, and, you know, Southeast Asia. I was in what they called the Fleet Pool. I was in a group of signalmen and telegraphists who used to get lent to ships as replacements when either somebody was sick or they'd been taken off to do a promotion course and things like that. And so in the time I was out there, in 18 months, I had quite a few ships. I was on four destroyers, a fleet auxiliary, which was a stores carrier, a cruiser, a frigate, and a couple of um, shore bases that were you know, um, headquarters places. All in all, I think I had about 11 moves in the 18 months, which wasn't very good because it took seven months for my kit to catch up with me. <laughs> so you were just uh, one pair of underwear and pants? Uh, pretty much. I'd, when my kit did arrive, it was so mouldy, it had to be entirely replaced. I didn't have to pay for it to be replaced because it wasn't my fault it had, you know, caught on me. Walk me through the next 10 years or so of your, um, like, what are some highlights from your career? Uh, well, in the Royal Navy, I spent time in the Persian Gulf. There was long before um, Saddam was a problem in Iraq. There was a, a, another fellow called General Qasim who decided he was going to take over Kuwait and we went up there and we were helping, I guess, to deter him from going into Kuwait on the ship I was on, which was HMS Saints, a destroyer. We had quite an interesting time there. We actually caught a gun runner who was trying to take you know, guns into Kuwait and I think the Kuwaiti police shot a lot of them. And we caught a slaver. We'd gone to Bahrain to fuel and we came out at two in the morning and we came up behind this ship and, or well, a dow. And when we hit it with a searchlight, they dragged these Africans out of the hold and we're gonna chuck them over the side. But our boarding party got on there too quick for them. And we handed them over to the Bahraini police. And it was about 
Well, six months later, we got a signal. Um, we were in West Africa at, by that time to say that the Bahraini government hung them all, the slavers. We did um, two, two trips in that ship, escorting the royal yacht with the Queen on board, which was interesting because you get to go to some nicer places and sometimes a bit odd. Um, we went to Liberia, for example, Monrovia, the capital of Liberia. Very strange place because they were freed American slaves, the origin of the Liberians. And they had, all the buildings were very much like sort of uh, um, 19th century America. Beautiful facades with a tin shed behind it sort of thing. And, and the women and the blokes dressed up were wearing the clothes of the 19th century. The blokes had stovepipe hats and the women crinoline and all that. It, yeah, were very odd though, very odd, yeah. I came to Australia in what, about 50, 58 on a ship from the Far East and I met my first wife and she subsequently came to England we got married and um, when I finished my 12 years in the Royal Navy I discharged in Singapore and came from Singapore to Australia. Did you discharge from the Royal Navy with the intention of joining the Royal Australian No, not initially. Um, you know, no intention of joining the Australian Navy. I hadn't <laughs> even thought about it quite honestly. Um, not because I had anything against the Australian Navy, just I, you know, I thought I was going to start a new life doing something different. And I was going to join the West Australian Police, but the pay was pretty woeful for a, And by this stage, I'm a married man with two kids, and I thought I can't really you know, survive on that basic pay. So I, I inquired, and they said, yeah, well, you, you can't have a second job, but you can join the Army Reserve. And I said, well, I don't want to go in the Army. They have a Navy Reserve? And the bloke said, I suppose so. And to be fair, somebody found out for me. So I went down to see about joining the Naval Reserve. And when I got there, the bloke was another, another pommy bloody looking for a handout sort of thing, until he found out that I was by this stage what they called a yeoman of signals. And the Australian Navy were very short of them. And he said, if you come in, you'll get your old rank back virtually straight away. And the pay for a PO in those days was 35 pounds a week, which was much better than a copper's pay of 22. So it wasn't a hard decision. <laughs> so I joined the Australian Navy. And I've got to say, I was very pleased I did and uh, I enjoyed every, you know, every, just about everything thereafter. The first ship was the old Anzac, the um, battle class destroyer, which of course I'd been on battle class destroyers before, so I was well versed with how the ship worked and all that sort of thing. Familiar territory. Yeah, yeah. And then I went to the supply, the tanker, because I got promoted to chief. Now I would never have made chief in the time that I did in the Royal Navy. But because the Australian Navy was so short in my category, as soon as I'd done four years as a PO, I got promoted chief. You know. I had to pass tests and that, but that wasn't that hard, you know. And I imagine pay went up a little bit? And, uh, yes, it, it did, up. yeah. In fact, I, and I guess I had a sort of charmed life in terms of promotions and that, because I always seemed to be eligible at the time vacancies were suddenly appearing, you know. So I, um, I did uh, Anzac and Supply in one posting. Then I went to Singapore in a shore job for 18 months. Then I came back and I went to HMAS Sydney, the carrier, which a lot of people use. But I, I was there when it was decommissioned. How long was that, 74? About that, I can't remember exactly, but I remember I got the signal that out of the blue, you know, said, um, it will be announced, this was at about 10 in the morning, 
It said it, it, at 11 today it will be announced in Parliament that HMS Sydney is to be decommissioned immediately. So you joined the famous Vungtau Ferry, one of um, Australia's greatest mm. ships, and then you're not on it for very long. No, I, we were due to go to Vietnam in about another two weeks after this date, but of course it didn't. Uh, I took the signal to the captain and I thought he was going to pass out. He wasn't a captain I got on very well with anyway. But. So then after that, I, when it did decommission, I went on HMS Vampire and finished my sort of two years or so at sea on the Vampire, which was probably the best ship I ever served in. No, I, um, I had a couple of more sh different shore postings, but then I went back to sea. I got, I, I got promoted to warrant officer, and I went to sea again on the fleet commander's, what they call retinue. I was the Admiral's warrant officer signals and I went wherever the Admiral went. I had the secret codes and stuff, not quite the, not quite the bag with the bomb in it, but... Which Admiral? Uh, first one I was with was, was Leach. He was a nice fella. David Leach? Yeah, lovely fella. And then the next one was, I did it again uh, another time. I went with um, Admiral Woolridge, who had been the captain of the Vampire, and I, you know, it was a particularly enjoyable time. And, and, Cap and, and then Admiral, Rear Admiral Woolridge, he did like to get around. I mean, in, in the 18 months I was with him, I did 52 helicopter transfers and jack stays and all that, you know. We, I think we visited damn near every ship in the fleet, except for, I only went on two submarines and they were both stationary submarines, not going anywhere, you know. I came back to Cerberus, but then they introduced a scheme where certain warrant officers got booted upstairs to be a lieutenant, and I was one of them. I, after that, I never left Cerberus as a, after I was a lieutenant. I, after a brief spell working for the executive officer as his sort of staff officer, I went into the training world again in the communication school, and for the next 10 odd years, I never left the comm school. I finished up as the officer in charge. And what have you done in the last 20 years? I never had a job, I've only done volunteer stuff and I've been very involved with the Naval Association, predominantly here. You're, you're president of this association, can you talk to me a bit about that? Yes, um, well I, I, I sort of fell into the job in the first place. Um, I'd been on the committee and um, the then president wanted to stand down and nobody else sort of seemed interested in doing it so I said I'll do it and I was the president here for a couple of years the Naval Association of Australia the Frankston subsection but I was also our delegate to the state section and I became a state vice president and when the state president got promoted to become the national president I got booted upstairs to become the state president. So I did three years as the state president until I stood down and then came back here and virtually sort of resumed my old job as the subsection president and have been that now for another two years. Yeah. And probably, probably for a little longer too. You never stop giving. When you're in the service, it's a life of service. Mm. Even when you're finished, you're giving back to your uh, fellow comrades. I, yes, I regard it. I regard it as, as comradeship more than anything else. Social inclusion is important and I think that the, what we do, I mean, we do look after people, particularly people with genuine welfare problems and so on, we try to sort that out. 
we're just getting people together. And it's surprising how a chat with old shipmates and what have you is very therapeutic for some people, you know. It's a bond that never really fades. Well, that, one of our mottos is once Navy, always Navy. And uh, I think that's a very fair description, albeit that, albeit that we stole that motto from the Royal Navy. It's been quite a life of service, Harry. Thank you for speaking with me today. My pleasure. Thank you. Yeah. My thanks go to Harry Keim and the Frankston Naval Memorial Club for hosting me. Get in touch with this podcast on social media. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Life on the Line Podcast and on Twitter at LOTL Pod. To find out more about us, visit www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com and to get in touch, just email podcast at lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design, music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget. <laughs>